I'm curious by show of hands, how many of you have listened uh, to any part of the podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill? Okay, a number of us. And I'm sure there are more people who are not here today who have. Um, it's sort of a podcast that's taken, I actually haven't listened to the whole thing, just parts of it. But it's sort of a podcast that blew up this last year, 2021. And if you're not familiar with Mars Hill, Mars Hill was a church that existed out in Seattle, was very big. Um, its senior pastor, Mark Driscoll, uh, started the church when he was quite young. Um, they had multiple campuses. He was listed as one of the most influential leaders in evangelicalism, um, in probably like Time Magazine or something like that. I can't remember, one of the magazines out there. And uh, eventually, though, the church kind of imploded under what eventually came out to be some abusive um, uh, leadership style that he had um, and just a lot, of a, a lot of character issues. And that podcast, it was just interesting, it blew up this last year, um, sort of detailing concerns that were, that was just sort of one microcosm of a broader, sort of, I, I feel like a broader just feel of last year where there's a lot of just reckoning happening within evangelicalism over just some malpractice, some concerns about like a culture of toxicity, concerns about abuse, concerns about leadership and accountability. There was just enough things happening within a circle of evangelicalism that wondered like, is there something, is the well poisoned? Is there something going on here? And so I come to you this morning in the midst of an of a evangelical culture and even I would say even outside of evangelicalism, just the broader world looking in, you had books like um, Jesus and John Wayne that kind of blew up on the New York Times bestseller list looking at some issues within evangelicalism. And so this, was, this is a pretty, um, it's, it's something that's on a lot of people's radars right now, is these concerns within evangelicalism about leadership and the culture in the church. And so last week we looked at the role of an elder and it kind of brings us to another question, though, is we looked at the responsibilities, the job description, per se, about an elder or a pastor. But now we want to ask that follow-up question is what characterizes a biblical, healthy practice of eldership in the local church? Not only is this a concern now in our sort of cultural moment with some of the things that I just talked about that are going on, but this should be a concern we have at all times, is wanting to know outside of just what do elders do, what is the role of an elder, what is an elder or a pastor, sort of part two today is to look at what characterizes a biblical and healthy practice of eldership in the church. So just some review, last week looking at what an elder is, as we look at some of the titles, elder, overseer, and shepherd or pastor, and we saw that these are all referring to the same office, that these are interchangeable uh, titles in that sense. Um, we looked at the different roles of the elder. Number one, they are to watch over and care for the congregation. Number two, they are to equip the congregation for ministry. Number three, they are to instruct in sound doctrine and to guard against error. Number four, they're to watch themselves. Number five, they are to rule and they are to govern over the church. Number six, they are to raise up further leaders. And number seven, they are to serve as examples to the flock. And then lastly, we talked about how they're to do all of this within a sort of a spirit of sacrificial service. 
And so this week we find ourselves looking at some additional matters, in some ways some miscellaneous categories that were left over. But these things also talk about and show the, their importance as it relates to the health and mission of the church. And these five, there are five things I want us to look at today, which are that eldership should be a qualified eldership. We want to see qualifications for our eldership. That eldership should be plural. There should be a plurality, a multiplicity. There should be more than one elder leading the church. Number three, there should be an equality among those elders who lead the church. Number four, we see a biblical case for financially supporting elders in this ministry. And then number five, sort of the flip side of that, is that nonetheless there are elders who are non-paid, and we want to look at why that is, is an advantage as well. You should have your verse handout that I made last week. If you are here and you have a copy of that, that's great. If you, for some reason, don't have your copy from last week or you weren't here last week, those should be available at the resource table. We're going to be looking at a number of verses, so I wanted to make that available to you just to kind of aid our time so you're not having to flip through all these different passages. You're free to do that, of course, if you like, but the verse sheet is there to kind of help you out. So, and this is another one of those sermons that I would say is a little bit peculiar in the sense of kind of bringing forth application to you. Um, In some ways, it's less of a sermon where I'm going to say, therefore, you all should do this. But in many ways, it's a way of saying, this is why we as a church are doing this. So our application along the ways, we're going to be making notes of of various ways that we as a church are seeking to do these things and are applying these things. But it's a little bit less you do this and more this is why we are doing these things, things that we're currently putting into application and want to keep doing together as a church, as a body. So without further ado, the first characteristic is a qualified eldership is the qualifications for eldership. And Sam already read to us one of the primary passages on that, 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. Another parallel passage, if you look at your sheet, is Titus 1. Titus 1, verse 5 and following, Paul says to Titus, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is, now he gives some qualifications for such elders that could be appointed. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, another term for elder, as God's steward must be above reproach, he must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Or if you'll get 2 Timothy 2, 2 Timothy 2, verse 24 and 25. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And so we don't have time in this particular sermon to look at all of those qualifications in detail, But on a high level, just a general broad observation, we nonetheless see that there are qualifications and criteria 
for the office of elder, namely character and being able to teach. And these are important qualifications. These are important for, these have functional value for the mission and health of the church. On the one hand, there's the skill which is able to teach. And because the role of an elder, one of its primary roles, as we saw last week, is to teach in sound doctrine and to correct against error, this ensures that if they're able to teach, this ensures they're able to carry out the functions and the responsibilities of the office. But one of the things that you'll notice, too, is that out of all the, character, out of all the qualifications, they are outside of able to teach. All of the rest of them are character traits. That character is, by and large, the emphasis of the qualifications of an elder. And why is that? Well, one, I think that this allows them to, again, be able to function as an elder, and one of the one of the things that we see elders do is not just to teach, but as we saw last week, one of the ways they lead the church is by serving as an example to the church, by rubbing shoulders with the church, by teaching them not only uh, what is taught, but by what is caught, by observing their lifestyle, by looking at the outcome of their faith. And then the other reason I would I I tend to think that um, there is such qualifications for the office is that. There's a certain fortitude that's needed for the difficulties and strain or the temptations that come with the office, as well as avoiding scandal should um, officers, elders, unnecessarily fall and get themselves into sin. Okay, so uh, I promise this is the only sport analogy today, okay, for, t- for today, because I had two last week. But I, even just this last week, okay, um, you guys know what happened with Antonio Brown some of you who watch football, some of you don't. It's okay if you don't, okay? Because I, I wasn't even really watching football, but I saw this clip, or I think I saw it trending on Twitter. Antonio Brown trending on Twitter. I'm like, oh, no, what's this all about? So Antonio Brown, I think back like a few years ago, maybe even this year, I don't follow football enough, I think he would have been considered like one of the best wide receivers, if not the best wide receiver in the league. And yet all of a sudden I see this clip where I kid you not, the player in the middle of a game, like while they're playing the game, is running through the end zone. He took off his equipment. He took off his jersey. He's running shirtless through the end zone. And he's like waving at the fans and saying bye to them and stuff. You would have thought like sometimes when a drunk fan runs out on the field and they have to like, you would have thought it was like, a. I was like, is that a drunk person running out? No, it's one of the players. And so he plays for the Buccaneers with Tom Brady, one of the best quarterbacks. So it's like a great duo to have a great quarterback and a great wide receiver. I mean, like that's prime, right? But the Buccaneers, his team, fired him instantly on the spot from what I was told. Why? Because there, there's, this is a common problem apparently with wide receivers as far as I'm aware. There's some wide receivers who are just so skilled, but they just get full of themselves. And they have all these issues both off the field and on the field where the team gets to the point where it says, it doesn't matter how good you are. Like, we just can't put up with this. And so similarly, the idea is like, we know in all areas of life, It's not just that you can have the skill, you can believe the right thing, you can have the right viewpoints or policy or what have you. Character matters, especially when it comes to leading an organization such as a church. And so character matters for the sake of an elder as well. And so what do we do as a church when we practice, when we put this into practice? Is that when we look at candidates, we're of course looking at these qualifications. We want to ensure that they actually meet these qualifications. So we have a candidacy process process that can last up to like over a year where we want to put them through the ringer. We want to get to know them. We do an officer assessment at the beginning of that process and at the end of that process with them and their wife uh, if they're married. 
to kind of get to know, to dig into their character, to get, dig into their skill set and make sure they're actually competent for these things. And we also have an annual assessment for all elders. Um, so Dan and I as well, for example, or any existing elders, we go through that assessment again every January to reassess and continue the accountability. And then we want to make sure that they're skilled. So we do training for our elders to make sure that they're competent. We have an ordination process, as we've told you, where we, we have the guys go through an examination, um, making sure that they can think well and discern biblically and theologically and pastorally. So that's number one, is a qualified office. Number two is a plurality to the office or a multiplicity. That is, there, we believe, biblically speaking, the Bible portrays the role of church government, the, the office of elder, as involving multiple elders, not just one, but a team of elders. So if you look at your sheet, uh, the very last part of it, there's like this huge list of all these verses. So let's just read through those quickly. You'll get the sense, notice, that there's an emphasis on elders, plural. So Acts 11:30, And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Acts 14, 23. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Acts 15 and 16. We have a range of verses here. 15, 2. Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go to Jerusalem, up to Jerusalem, to the apostles and the elders about this question. Verse 6, the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. 22, then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. Chapter 16, verse 4, as they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and the elders who were in Jerusalem. Go now to Acts 20, verse 17. Now from Miletus, he, Paul, that is, sent to Ephesus, and he called the elders of the church to come to him. The elders from Ephesus. Verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves. Notice, plural. To yourselves and to all the flock. Talking to the elders there. In which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Plural. There's another term for an elder or pastor. Overseers. Philippians 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers, plural, and deacons. So again, this is at the beginning of the letter. He's addressing the church in Philippi, and he says, I'm writing to the, the church in Philippi with a specific mention of the overseers, plural. 1 Timothy 5:17. Let the elders, plural, who rule well, be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Titus 1, verse 5, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders, plural, in every town as I directed you. Hebrews 13, verse 7, Remember your leaders, plural. Okay, it doesn't mention elders here, but again, I think we can infer things. Those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Obey your leaders, verse 17, and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your soul as those who will have to give an account. James 5, verse 14, is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church, and they will pray over them, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And then lastly, 1 Peter 5, so I exhort the elders, plural, 
among you. And so how do we do this as a church? How do we seek to implement a plurality of elders, a multiplicity of elders? Well, we, that's what we try to do, obviously. We try to, as we are governing the church, we try to seek to lead up, to raise up, that is, others who can be serving as elders as well, to shepherd the church as a team. And so we're constantly trying to identify and build up other men to that role. And there's reasons why this is important. Not only does the Bible teach this, and therefore we should do it, if nothing else, because there's this pattern in Scripture, this is how the Bible models church government, but there's actual value to it as well, I would say. This is important for our health and our mission as a church. I would give at least four things, at least. So four things here. First, having a plurality of elders provides a fuller vision to the overseeing office of the church, ideally covering up the blind spots of each individual elder. So all of us have blind spots. By having more elders, a multiplicity of elders, it provides a fuller vision, and it covers up the blind spots that each of us have. Number two, it supplies more gifting to the overseeing office, covering each other's individual weaknesses. So not only does it cover blind spots, but it covers weaknesses and it provides more strengths. Each of us has, has different giftings, different experiences, different training, different skill sets, different insights. And so this brings more gifting to the overseeing office. Number three, by recruiting more people to pastoral care, it better or you might say less strenuously or more sustainably ensures the fulfillment of pastoral responsibilities. There's less strain. You have more people. More hands make light work, as the saying goes. You have more people to help out. I think about when I was in high school, one of my first jobs was working at a restaurant called Scoops. We served ice cream and everything else known to man. Uh, it was a shop where my boss, for whatever reason, he just... He just, it was not, we did not have a, uh, it was not a one-trick pony kind of uh, restaurant. It was like, anytime someone mentioned, you know, it'd be nice if you carried this on the menu, he added it. So we had everything. We had an arcade, we had ice cream, we had pizza, we had a candy shop. But you want to talk about things being, um, not having enough employees today with the economy the way it is. That was back then in my small town. Um, people are short-staffed now is what I mean. Well, back then, I would oftentimes be assigned to work that restaurant all by myself. So it would be, this is a small town, northern Wisconsin, okay? So I would be there, and the boss, he was an older man, and sometimes he would be there, and he would just kind of like sit there and watch TV in his restaurant, and I would kind of do everything else, okay? And sometimes he would leave. He'd have to go somewhere. And so I would be the person who would check you out at the register, and then I would go back and I would cook your food, and then I would come and I would be your waiter, and then I'd be the busboy, and I was doing everything. And then sometimes we also did delivery, so sometimes I would have to like bring you, I kid you not, like I'd have to bring someone food and then take food off the grill and run a delivery and leave customers in the restaurant by themselves. Like, it was just nuts, okay? It's a different world up there. <laughs> we don't want pastors doing that. <laughs> Okay? It's good to have a multiplicity of people to help out. So, you know, you're not trying to do the register and cook the burger at the same time. Having more people brings, it recruits more folks to pastoral care. And then fourthly, it provides a network of accountability within the pastorate. 
So pastors have other pastors who are their peers, who can be checks and balances, who can push and pull on each other and can call each other out when needed and encourage each other as well when they're discouraged. Okay, so we've seen the qualified eldership. We've seen a plurality of eldership. Thirdly, and related to the second one, is now this, an equality of eldership. Sometimes the word used is a parity of eldership, but equality of eldership. That is, all the elders are equal, okay? And this would be my case for this. As as we've looked at, I mean, there's lots of things that could be said, but very simply, as we looked at the list of, the, of all the cases of a plurality of elders, all the times where we saw elders plural, it never once distinguished like a senior pastor and an associate pastor. It never gave the hint that there was some sort of hierarchy. And so although that's very common um, today, I would say that that position holds the burden of proof. I just don't see that in scripture. This idea of having a hierarchy, of having a senior pastor versus an assistant pastor and all of that. There's sort of no assumption in scripture about a hierarchy. There's no mention of lead pastors. And again, I think there's value then to having inequality where, where all the elders are on a team. There's not one who's sort of the leader among them. There's not one who's sort of a first among equals, as sometimes people say, but all of them are serving together equally peers. There's a benefit to this for the mission and health of the church. First, I think it better fosters accountability. Of course, you can have accountability even if you have a team of elders and there's hierarchy. But when they're all equal, I think it better fosters accountability because rather than there being sort of a superior and inferior dynamic where you're less likely to hold your superior accountable and the superior is more likely to get himself into difficult situations where he's less checked, when you have a team of peers who are genuinely peers, they can hold each other accountable better. Second of all, it avoids setting up any one person on a pedestal. Okay, we're seeing a problem within evangelicalism where pastors are sort of being held up as celebrities, as if they're the guy. Well, if you don't set up one person as sort of your lead pastor, your senior pastor, your preaching vision pastor, whatever you want to call it, you're less apt to do that when you serve together as a team. Thirdly, it communicates that none of us is indispensable or as if like the church needs one of us to be at the center in order for our ministry to be successful. We're all dispensable. Like God doesn't need any of us. And so to place one person at the center has the danger of giving off the sense that that person is especially needed for the sake of the success of ministry. Fourthly, having an equality among the elders better fosters stability and continuity during times of transition because the ministry isn't built around and it doesn't hinge on one person if they were to leave. So if you have one person who's kind of the, like they're the guy and they end up moving on from the church at some point, it creates a lot more instability because everything was sort of hinging on them more or less. Whereas if you have a team of elders where you're already, you already functionally are sharing a lot of those responsibilities, if one person has to, has to bow out or to leave for some reason or transition, it's less of a jostle going on. And then lastly, having an equality of elders, I think actually better shares the load of the stress of eldering. So not only would a plurality help with this, of course, we have more people to help, as we already noted, but additionally, having an equality among the elders also avoids having one guy bear the lion's share of that pressure that comes in pastoral ministry. 
So you might think of it this way. If you think of a senior pastor model where there's sort of one primary pastor and then sort of the more subordinate pastors, that in my mind would be more similar to like a surgeon who's in surgery and he has all of his physician assistants. At least this is how I imagine it. Will can probably correct you if I'm wrong. But I imagine the surgeon there, he's, you know, he's cutting the person open, he's stitching things together, and his physician's assistants are, are handing him the scalpel and they're handing him this tool and they're kind of aiding him, but he's the boss. He's the one mainly calling the shots. I think of an equality of elders in the church more like a band. Okay, if, you're, if you have a band, um, there's not necessarily one person who's leading the band, musically speaking. But rather, what do you have? You have all the members um, who have different roles. You have the person playing drums who provides, who, who might lead, you might say, with the rhythm. You have another person, maybe the lead guitar, who leads in terms of providing a melody. Or you have a rhythm guitar, you have the bass who leads in terms of providing that bass line or the vocals or what have you. Everyone's kind of serving a different role. There are, of course, are functional differences. People aren't all necessarily doing the same thing. When I say equality, we don't necessarily mean uniformity. We don't mean everyone's the same. But there's different roles, there's different strengths. Everyone has a different part to play, and we work together in harmony to make a unified song. And so how do we do this as a church? What is our application of this? Is Of course, we don't have a senior or lead pastor. We have a team of pastors and elders. We strive then to make decisions together as a team. We pursue consensus. So no one among the elders has more of a voice or more of a vote than anyone else, but we strive for unity. And there are, of course, functional and practical differences. So some elders at times are gonna have more training. You'll have elders who have an MDiv. You'll have elders who didn't go to seminary. That's just a reality. You'll have elders who have more experience. They've been in pastoral ministry longer. You'll have elders who have different types of experience. Maybe someone did more counseling. Someone did more teaching. You'll have different skills. Some people will be better with organization. Some people will be better uh, having coffee with someone. You'll have different time that people can dedicate. Some pastors are paid. Some pastors are bivocational and work other jobs. There are, of course, all of these differences. So we're not denying that when we talk about inequality of elders. But nonetheless, notwithstanding those things, all elders are equally called to the qualifications and responsibilities. It isn't like some elders need to be really qualified and then our non-paid, what sometimes we call lay elders, they have like a lower bar of qualification. No, all elders must be qualified and all elders bear the responsibility of what it means to be an elder. And we're all equally pastors. So should Sam and Joby, for example, get appointed to be elders, they're just as much your pastor as I am. They're just as much your pastor as Dan is, even notwithstanding some obvious functional differences in terms of time and training and all those things. But you should feel comfortable going to them as your pastor and look to them as pastors too. So we don't want the staff people to be viewed as like the staff pastors. Those are the real pastors. And then the non-paid pa pastors or non-paid elders, are, they're kind of like a second-class pastor. We want to avoid that. And this is why... Functionally, we have everyone go through the ordination process that we have because there isn't sort of a lesser bar for what we might call lay elders. There isn't a lower standard for those uh, candidates. Fourthly, 
there is a value of financial support and a biblical principle of financial support. So look at me with 1 Timothy 5. 1 Timothy 5, verse 17. Paul says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially, or namely, that is, those who labor in preaching and teaching. So the question I want to ask as we look at this verse is, what does it mean to consider such elders worthy of double honor? Okay, so very briefly here, um, as you can tell, I'm trying to move quickly through this so we have as much time to ask Sam questions as possible. So I appreciate you keeping up the pace with me. But really briefly here then on what does double honor mean is first of all, this word honor, it can mean either honor in the sense of respecting someone, like showing them honor. That's how we typically use the word. Or it can also mean something like compensation, like the value that someone you give someone in terms of financial pay. Okay? It might be similar to how we use the word honoring someone and then giving them honorarium. Are you guys familiar with the word honorarium? Like if someone comes to speak, we give them an honorarium to kind of show them honor, but give them a gift of money. So it's like how those two words are related. You can honor them and give them an honorarium. That's how honor in this verse is it can, can, what it can mean and how it's used in other contexts, both a respect but also like financial support. Okay? It can mean those things. Now, in context, we've already seen that the word honor already does involve financial support. So earlier in the chapter, Paul has talked about honoring widows, which in that context meant helping those widows out financially who didn't have any means of income. So we already know that Paul is, in context, using honor to mean supporting financially. Okay, and this is right in the context. Verse 18 then also goes on to clarify that this honor involves financial support. So look at verse 18 with me. The very next verse says, for, that is as an explanation of what I just got done saying about honor, for the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Like if you're going to have an ox tread out grain, let the ox also eat the grain. Let the, let the ox have some fruit of its own labor and the laborer deserves his wages. Okay, so there's lots of discussion then around what double honor specifically means. One option is that the double, the word double, is intended to then invoke both meanings of the word. So double honor in terms of both the honor of respect and the honor of financial support. So there are elders who rule well, namely by laboring and preaching and teaching, that we want to not only honor, but we want to double honor them by also providing them financial support. Support, in other words. And this fits with other passages we see in Scripture, 1 Corinthians 9, 14, where Paul talks about his right as an apostle doing ministry to receive compensation. And he says, those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Or Luke 10, verse 7, Jesus says, for the laborer deserves his wages. Galatians 6, let the one who is taught by the word, or is taught the word, share all good things with the one who teaches. Okay, so in summary, the church should make every effort to provide financially for those elders who are especially involved in laboring for the church, specifically pointed out here in the labor of preaching and teaching. Now, you might think of it kind of like this, okay? When we, um, when we have a missionary, one of the things that we do is, and one of the things that missionaries do is they raise support. 
Okay? And why do missionaries raise financial support? I suppose some missionaries in some contexts, they might just go out bivocationally. They might work a job, like Paul was a tent maker, right? He worked a job making tents and then shared the gospel. But there are a lot of missionaries who, given their uh, type of ministry or what have you, they raise financial support and we give them money, churches give them money. Why? Because we want to free them up so they don't have to have all their energies dedicated to providing for themselves financially so that they can spend that time otherwise by ministering the gospel, by doing the work of a missionary. And that's how I would like us to think about why we pay certain elders. So we don't necessarily, I don't think the Bible gives us a picture of paying elders that's like an employee-employer contract, where it's like, you do this work for us and we pay you based off of merit or based off of, like, kind of like a salary or a compensation idea. I don't think that's sort of the, the missional idea of paying elders in the Bible. I would like you to think of it more like supporting a missionary. We value what an elder does. We value the role of an elder. We think it's good for, for certain elders to be able to dedicate themselves full time to these endeavors. So let's free them up from the concern of finances and material needs so that they can do that more wholeheartedly, so that they can put more time into it. So we view it more as financial support that frees them up for the work of ministry. And this is why, as we practice this as a church, we've moved to paying all of our elders the same set amounts, the same set salary, so to say, because we're not viewing it as a compensation based on merit, but rather it's, it's, we view it as taking care of an elder's financial needs so that they don't need to go spending their time earning an income with an outside job, but can fully dedicate themselves to ministry. But if that's the case, then it's not about compensating them based on more of your typical secular standards for determining salaries, like many of you probably have in the, work in the workforce. But it's about providing them enough to free them up, which is generally not going to be widely varying from elder to elder, okay? But this is an important thing too. Financially supporting elders is important for the health and the ministry of the local church because it frees up elders to do the work of eldering, serving the church's health and its mission. And then lastly, the flip side of having paid elders, of paying certain elders to free them up, is that we also then have non-paid elders. Right now we don't, but we are, obviously that's part of our polity, that's part of our church government, we're moving in that direction. Should Sam and Joby be elected, we've had non-paid elders in the past. And so the, there's a value of having non-paid elders as well. What we saw from that 1 Timothy 5 passage is that it's addressing certain elders. It's not assuming that all elders are necessarily paid. And in fact, in 1 Corinthians 9, Paul even talks about will, willingly forgoing payment. He talks about not taking advantage of the right of receiving payment for the sake of the gospel. And so we as a church, we also ideally like to have non-paid elders as well on the team. Um, I've been sort of conceding by using this term lay elder, but I have to admit I'm not very fond of that term um, because lay, what the word lay means is like you're not clergy, you're not ordained, you're not a minister. So to speak of someone as a lay elder is like a oxymoron. It's like a jumbo shrimp. Or I like to joke it's like country music. <laughs> I'm joking. It's a joke, it's a joke. Okay, but it's an oxymoron to call someone, it's like calling someone a, a non-pastor pastor, right? So I like to use the term better, which I think is a non-paid or a non-staff 
elder or a bivocational elder, something along those lines. Okay, there's still elders, there's still pastors, but there's functional differences and they're not paid. They work other jobs. They're, they're, a lot of their time and their energy is consumed with taking care of those physical and material needs. But it's also valuable, just like it's valuable to pay certain elders so they're freed up, I think there's also a lot of value in having elders who aren't paid, who work other jobs. Okay, let me give you two reasons. First, it helps us actually achieve a plurality of elders. Most churches, if you had to pay every elder, would not be able to have a plurality of elders. We can only pay two of us right now. Okay, we, so I guess we'd be able to achieve a plurality of elders in two, but that's not a lot. Okay, should we be at a point where we can only pay one? Well, then we'd be stuck at one, right? And we want to have a plurality of elders. We see that as a biblical model. And so having, being open to non-paid elders, having guys who are willing to sacrifice of their time without receiving payment for it, that allows us to achieve a plurality of elders beyond our financial constraints, and it thus recruits more men to pastoral ministry. But also, even outside of that, having men, um, these particular men, who can contribute something unique to the team that paid elders can't, I think. They bring a unique perspective when they're rubbing shoulders week in and week out with their coworkers in the workforce, when they're sort of out in the world more, you might say. They bring a unique perspective. Maybe if they don't have seminary training and someone does, the person who doesn't have seminary training is probably going to have an, an, an added beneficial perspective as well that the person with seminary training doesn't have. And so we value that diversity as well. And so, appreciate you keeping up with my pace this morning. What we've looked at is the characteristics, some additional characteristics of a biblical healthy practice of eldership in the local church. And we've seen it characterized by five things. There, it is a qualified eldership. It is a plural eldership. It is an equal team of elders. There is financially supported elders, and there are also non-paid elders. And again, I want to emphasize that all of these things matter. Again, it's one of those, like, how do we apply this message? In many ways, it's not so to say, you guys go out and do this, but more, this is why we as a church are doing these things, why we together can own these practices. And I want to convince you, I want to, I want to commend you to the fact that these things are really valuable for our health as a church and for us being able to carry out our mission of making maturing followers of Jesus by the power of the gospel. In our philosophy of ministry, we, we describe uh, various aspects of our church in terms of how they relate to discipleship. So we talk about the ministry of the word, preaching and teaching, as the means of discipleship. Or we talk about community as the context for discipleship. Or the, the, the sacraments or the ordinances, the signs, the symbols of our discipleship. We go on and on and on. The way we describe church government and church organization is that it's the facilitator of discipleship. It's the thing that kind of exists in the background to grease the wheels for all of the ministry that happens. But it's vitally important, even as it serves that facilitating role. This is how we put it. We say, we believe that the biblical model of church government and organization, namely that the local church be served by deacons and led by a plurality of qualified elders, that this is incredibly significant to the maturation and health, healthy functioning of the local church. For example, when the offices are functioning as they should, this helps ensure that the church's needs are accounted for and addressed. 
Or again, a church's government, particularly its elders, serves as something like the rudder for its ministry decisions. And as such, a healthy polity, that is church government, and a healthy leadership significantly contribute to the cultivation of a healthy church. But no matter how much we strive to do this, as we're going to get into the book of Judges, we're going to see that God's people are, are, are a, bunch, a bunch of losers who can't keep it together. Okay? And that same sin that existed in the Israelites is the same sin that we deal with. Praise God, he changes us and he's transforming us by the gospel, but the flesh still resides. And so no matter how well we kind of get our ducks in a row and we try to implement these things, we still fail. We're still susceptible to error. And so our hope does not rest in our ability to get all of our polity right and all of our church government right and all of our eldering right and having the best elders because it's not going to happen. Our ultimate hope, and we can have confidence even as we look into a topic like this, our ultimate hope is because Christ is the one who cares for the church more than any of us do, and he cares for the church so much so that he purchased the church with his own blood. The church is his bride that he has bought, that he is washing, and he's purifying by his word. And as Acts 20 says, Paul is talking to the elders. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to the flock, to the sheep, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which God obtained with his own blood. And that's what we believe. That's at the heart of what we believe as Christians, as those who worship Jesus, the Messiah. We believe that God sent him to bear our sin on the cross, all of our wrongdoing that would separate us from God, that would bring us God's condemnation, that would rightfully bring us his wrath. We're, we're, we're disconnected from God and we are, we are his enemies under sin. But God in his love sent, sent Christ to purchase us with his blood through his death on the cross, bearing the sin of all those who trust in him, to look, who look to him for their rescue, not looking to themselves, but looking for him as their way of escape from God's wrath and have peace with God through Christ. And so as we come to celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning, we see all throughout scripture, it's this beautiful thing that God does. Throughout scripture, God makes several covenants. He makes the Noahic covenant, which seems to be reflective of a covenant even going back to creation. He gives uh, the covenant with Abraham. He gives the covenant through Moses. He gives the covenant to David. And all of these covenants, at least most of them, um, they, he gives us signs as well. It's something that God does. He's in the business of not just telling us promises and giving us his word, describing his actions, but then he also gives us these signs that seal the promises of his word because he knows we're physical people. He knows we're tangible people. We're weak people. We not only need to, be, to, to, to hear his promises, but we need to see, we need to touch, we need to feel his promises. We need to be assured because we're weak in our faith. And so just like God gives the sign of circumcision or the rainbow or Sabbath, when he invokes the new covenant, he gives us a sign of baptism in the Lord's Supper as a way of taking the promises of the gospel and pressing them into our hearts. Week after week, we're reminded of these things. I think of Jesus' promise and as the great shepherd then, the one who cares for his church more than any of us do, 
Hebrews 13 describes Jesus as that great shepherd of the sheep who achieved the eternal covenant by his blood. And every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, every time we practice this, we're reminded that we have a great shepherd who guarantees the covenant, who guarantees his covenant promises to take care of his church, to redeem his church. He's given us a sign of his death, his body and blood given over for us in death. And it's not just a sign, but it's a seal to all those who trust in him. It is a guarantee that he will bring the promises of that covenant to fulfillment 